Welcome to Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I'm Matthew Hawkins. Joining me at the Leland House on Capitol Hill today are Stephen Harris and Travis Rousseau. Gentlemen, welcome back to the studio. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. This episode is brought to you by the 2018 Evangelicals for Life Conference. We hope you'll join us to advance a culture of life as we march for life in Washington, D.C., Parallel to the annual March for Life, the largest pro-life protest in the world, the ERLC co-hosts annually the Evangelicals for Life conference with focus on the family. Learn more at evangelicals.life and use promo code CC20 to save 20% on registration. That's promo code CC20 at evangelicals.life. Gentlemen, we're in Washington. It's a recess week for the Senate, business week for the House, with the exception of Columbus Day. Yeah, Columbus Day. It's kind of nice. Kind of nice. My commute was extra speedy this morning. It was extra speedy and far less crowded this morning. Yeah, that's right. Favorite days for uh, public policy professionals in Washington are congressional days off. Exactly. When we when we were living overseas, <laughs> you know, there's all there's all these uh, extra holidays uh, in the Jewish calendar that we don't celebrate. And so one of the funny quirks that my kids always ask on holidays is they'll they'll say it, you know. So, mommy, daddy, do we celebrate Columbus Day? And it was like, well, yes. I mean, it's like our holiday. Right. You know, it's not like a Jewish holiday. It's like right. our holiday, but yeah. we don't really do anything. You like, there's nothing, nothing to do. To, yeah, there's nothing to be a cake overseas. or yeah. You just yeah. You uh, you don't have to go to school today, but like, we're not we're not having a party. So, <laughs> no cake, no yeah, fireworks. Exactly. That's too bad. So, on the agenda today, we're going to talk about Dreamers and DACA and legislative attempts to resolve those conflicts. We're going to talk about criminal justice reform and the latest movements on the Hill and uh, maybe some other stuff, but those are the two main things we want to talk about today. Travis, what's the latest on the Dreamer saga? Yeah, so we released a uh, evangelical statement of principles on Dreamers last week. We were very uh-huh. excited to launch that. We uh, also launched a uh, petition. So if you were listening to this and interested in attaching or affixing your name uh, to the petition, uh, you can go check it out. We will post the uh, the link to the petition in the show notes. But the statement basically lays out six broad principles that guide what, what we think a, a fair and just uh, solution to this you know, for this category of immigrants, dreamers, and just before we get too far into it, dreamers are—it's uh, a broad term. They—they the—the they, um, the term comes from the Dream Act, which was, I think, originally introduced in 2002 by Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin, um, uh, senators Lindsey Graham and and Durbin. And dreamers are are essentially those that category of immigrants that was they were uh, brought here by their parents. So the average age that. Uh, the dreamer arrived in the United States is age six. Uh, today, the average dreamer is aged uh, 25. And this statement basically lays out the principles that we think should guide a legislative solution to providing a pathway to legal status right. um, and or citizenship uh, for this for this category of immigrants. And so uh, the first is that we believe that it is unjust to punish children for offenses that they did not commit. And I think – Seems like a – Fair assertion. Yeah, well, I mean, the, but let's. I mean, just to root this in the Bible. I mean, the the you know the the Mosaic Covenant is consistent and and it is repeated throughout uh, the Pentateuch that 
children should not be held responsible for uh, the sins of their parents. And so, you know, while we acknowledge that a law was broken, um, it wasn't broken by kids who were brought here by no fault of their own. They they were they weren't you know as I said before they on on average they were age six. They weren't the decision makers. They weren't that's right culpable legally or morally. Yeah, right, that's exactly for that right. particular action. Right. So in some ways, this is the th- central thing that defines this category of immigrants. Right. The second principle is that we believe America's borders must be secure. We we recognize that uh, border security has has been a persistent problem in this country, and we think that that it's appropriate and necessary that we do something about it. We don't take a position on some of the more controversial issues, you know, specifically the wall. Um, you know, but there, there are a number of ways to address this. And in fact, the department of, of Homeland security is, is working on, we believe that the release is imminent yeah. of a study that basically lays out their plan. If we're going to secure the border, here's what we think should be done. It should will involve walls in some places, tethered drones and others maybe, but uh, it's unclear exactly what that statement will be. And sure. There's you know some speculation about why it's taken so long to release it. But the third is that we believe we should welcome dreamers of good moral character and who are working hard to contribute to our country. So yeah. in the first instance, we believe that there should be a screen for uh, that would screen out those who have committed felonies or multiple misdemeanors. People, the, people who've sh- clearly shown evidence that they're not willing to play by the rule of law. That's exactly right. But second, secondarily, we also think we should give preference to those who are contributing to our country through sure. education, through work, uh, through service in, in the military. The fourth is that we believe dreamers deserve to be recognized as our fellow Americans. And what we're getting at here is – what what we what we need to recognize about this category of of immigrants and these kids is that they really know no other home than the United States right. in most cases in many cases english is the only language that they know they don't yeah. have any family or the fa- or their family connections back to where they from where they came from are tenuous at best and so part of the challenge here is this question of of deserving and recognition and um, and fairness and all of those sorts of issues. But I think one of the things that, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about or what I was talking about with the um, principle just before this is that the th- one of the things which is empirically true about this category of immigrants and that we think should be true about uh, any, any uh, program that would provide permanent legal status and citizenship is that those dreamers who are contributing right. and who are – uh, and who are uh, working to make their communities better and working to make America a stronger place and those who would be proud to be called Americans. We should recognize them as such. Yeah. Uh, the next is a corollary to that. We believe that our government should provide a pathway to permanent legal status and or citizenship for uh, for eligible dreamers. Uh, and then the last is that we believe that a just government works to maintain the integrity of families. And obviously, these principles work together. Not one of these is uh, the ultimate over all of the others. And we know that you right. know, in a situation as messy and complex as that, which the, those situations which have been created by our broken immigration system, there are situations where families are going to be separated. We know that, you know, where, where, where crimes have been committed, where, where justice needs to be paid. So what we aren't saying is that families need to be held together period, full stop at all costs. As an ultimate principle. Exactly. But I think what we do have to say is that if we believe that the family is the fundamental building block of of our society, Mm -hmm. we should want to ensure that our immigration policy is one that supports the integrity of family, not one which is indifferent to that. And so, you know, when we talk about 
I think what's crucial to understand when we're talking about a solution for this category of immigrants is it's inherently a limited discussion. Uh-huh. This isn't a comprehensive debate. This is a question about you know eight hundred thousand to one point five million, you yeah. know, depending on how you define uh, this category of immigrants. We're not talking about all eleven million who are here, and so as a result, we we think it's appropriate and necessary really to cabin this discussion to uh, to those uh, concerns on kind of both sides of the aisle uh, that are germane. Uh, to this category of immigrants. And yeah. so anyway, so this is the statement that we put out. If you're interested in, uh, in signing on to it, we would love to have your name on there. Um, you can look at the signatories. I'll just draw out a couple. Um, obviously our boss, Russell Moore signed, uh, signed on Bruce Ashford, Rosaria Butterfield, uh, DA Carson, Matt Chandler, Eric Erickson, Ronnie Floyd, Jack Graham, JD Greer, uh, so it's a it's a very impressive Richard Land it's a and Greg Laurie it's a it's a it's an impressive uh, group of people who obviously don't agree on everything right. about everything uh, but do agree on this and so and, if you and within evangelical life something of a spectrum really. yeah absolutely yeah. for those of you who track inside the trend lines of evangelical life and uh, the unity and debates uh, within that space it's a rather decent cross section yeah it's a great cross section we were we were very pleased and very proud to have. Uh, to have the the lit, you know this this group of people sign on, so we'd love to have you join us uh, if you if you'd like. In terms of where we are, um, you know there there have been a number of bills that have been introduced. I think the last time we recorded Tillis's and Langford's bill had dropped. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. So there's a number of different vehicles. They each kind of do a little bit different things. They answer you know some of the big questions in terms of you know how how young must you have come here in order to qualify. What what do you have to do in order to prove good moral character and and prove that you're contributing to your community? So there are some little differences uh, here and there. How long do you have to wait before yeah. naturalization is an oper- you know is an option for you, and so on? But um, by and large, you know they're they're all sort of working at the same you know working towards the same goal, which we're which we're pretty encouraged by. So there are multiple vehicles introduced, but not all those uh, bills that would be uh, introduced are going to be you know get past the finish line just right. as they are now, right? These are kind of all to varying degrees uh, starting points for negotiation, right? Uh, yeah, fair to say. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. Yeah, and you know, and it's not really clear which of these is is going to be the lead horse. Um, you know, it's possible. Uh, I failed to mention actually on Thursday, uh, Senator Flake introduced a bill that was a combination of a solution for Dreamers as well as border security. It's so new, and yeah. there's been so much going on. I sure. haven't even had a chance to to dig into it yet. But well, even in this past week, I've been talking to a lot of Hill staff, and they were uh, familiarizing themselves with the RAC Act and uh, things that had been introduced and populated in the House, and some of them weren't even aware yet of the uh, Succeed Act right. from Tillis and, and Lankford, which had been out for like a week and a half. So right. there's still a lot of officers still even researching what's available uh, for them to consider. Yeah. I would say all in all, I'm encouraged by the number of vehicles that have been introduced and encouraged by the amount of leadership that has been um, exerted on this. So, um, you know, what what happens of the debate remains to be seen. And, and one other factor that uh, is still new, and we're still kind of digesting and trying to make sense of of how it's going to fit in and, and adjust to the equa- uh, equation. Is that the White House released a statement of principles on immigration uh, late Sunday night? It's a very broad set of principles. Um, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the the earlier discussions about what this bill is or should be is something limited. Uh, to those issues germane to this category of immigrants. Right. And one of the 
the most common or natural pairings that that has been discussed in Washington and certainly on Capitol Hill is a pairing between a solution for dreamers along with some measure of border security. Right. Obviously, Democrats have, have indicated that they're not going to support uh, funding for a wall or the construction of a wall in the southern border, but you know it's another issue that's kind of been in the mix. Yeah. This list that the White House released was much broader, included – uh, interior enforcement, 10,000 additional ICE agents. It included right. uh, faster track for deportation. It included uh, fairly significant uh, reforms in terms of the way that naturalization occurs and specifically family-based uh, migration. And so I think we're, you know, we like a lot of other um, organizations are still trying to understand, one, what is what was the White House trying to accomplish uh, with this statement of principles. Sure. Um, secondarily, you know, how broadly held is this statement of principles within the White House, right. um, which is another sort of interesting dynamic that you always have to consider uh, these days. I think that's all important to, to keep in mind, and I think we'll be, be watching closely in the days ahead in terms of assessing the degree to which a lot of these principles that have just come out from the administration are, are going to be uh, fought for. One of the things that I appreciate about um, – the position that we're taking on this issue and the, the the things that we're trying to inflect into the conversation at the principial level is that all of the the typical thematics under which uh, evangelicals, in particular Christians broadly, even think through sociopolitical issues, whether that's justice, whether that's dignity, whether that's life, whether that's family. What we're trying to say is that this issue touches and intersects with each of those themes, right? And so we're trying to encourage people to make sure that there is a consistency with which they adhere to these these thematics, right? And so we're trying to remind people that this issue, like any other, um, needs to be assessed, analyzed, through that same grid, right? This 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 touches on what we have to say about dignity, what we have to say about families, what we all of that is at stake here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we find ourselves to be um, or to lack consistency um, here, I think that that rightly so calls into question how we are applying uh, these principles and convictions that we that we ostensibly affirm how we're applying those across the board. And so I appreciate uh, the ways in which we're situating ourselves here and and how that message to varying degrees is being received in different offices. But I think that challenge needs to be put out there to make sure that people's lives and their lips are matching up. No, I think you're exactly right, Stephen. And, you know, there, there's a discussion about these issues, which, which is, is this group of immigrants or that group of immigrants, are they taking something away from us? Are they freeloading on our tax dollars? Are they taking jobs from me or from my kids? And I don't want to move past that conversation because I think it is an important discussion for us to have. Um, you know, f- the the fairness discussion for, uh, for Americans is a significant one. And we do need to make sure that um, to the extent that laws were broken, and we know that laws were broken, our community or society or, you know, the moral harm that was done against our country as a whole, you know, however we want to conceptualize that, we do need to have that conversation. It does need to be addressed. At the same time, and I think parallel to that discussion, we also have to recognize that the way that we handle this situation, there is a whole set of moral concerns. And this is kind of what you were getting to, Stephen, about the way that we address, let's just, you know, restrict the conversation to the to the dreamers, the policy solutions that we come up with for this category of immigrants. Mm-hmm. 
whether we know it or not, is being driven by our morals, by our values, by our principles. And so we need to surface those things and actually examine them and discuss them and ask the question, if we are advocating for policy position X, Mm -hmm. what must we then believe about this group of immigrants or what must we then believe about uh, about the value of the family or the value of of justice and so on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So understanding those principles, what we've been advocating on, Travis, what does the landscape look like, practically speaking, moving from here? On Monday afternoon, we don't, we don't know. Sure. We're, we're so, I mean, just to be honest, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, um, the White House's statement of principles were much broader or much harder line than I think anybody was expecting. Okay. And so how that is going to be absorbed and internalized in both the House and the Senate, I think remains to be seen. Obviously, sure. as we just discussed today's Columbus Day, nobody's working today. Right. Um, you know, we, we have, I've sent out some feelers and whether it's because people are on holiday or because they don't want to talk about this right now and are still trying to figure out what they think about it, uh, we're still trying to get our arms around it. Yeah. Obviously, in well, I'll say two things. One, it's good to know where the White House is on this or right. at least where some people in the White House are on this. Um, again, we don't really know how broadly these, this view is held and we don't know how, you know, if this is an opening salvo or if this is a line in the sand, you know, all that remains to be seen. But um, at least we're past this step and now we can start working in light of this new information. On the other hand, I think it is this document presents some real challenges uh, moving forward in terms of trying to find a path to 60 votes in the Senate and to 218 votes in the House. Uh, that That is is just a fact. And, um, you know, so we'll, we will be working closely with House and Senate leadership uh, to try to find a path forward. I mean, yeah. I, I think is the best that we can say. I mean, I, I, I would be lying if I was saying I wasn't a little bit discouraged. Yeah. But, you know, going back to the, the dinner over Chinese food with uh, the president and Chuck and Nancy, uh, about a month ago, right. um, there did seem at that point a willingness to work something out. Yeah. So this document does not, I, in my opinion, reflect – it's going to be hard to get a deal done on the terms laid out in this document. Yeah. But you know, let's, let's pay attention to what the White House does, not what it says. Sure. Yeah. So on a different issue, something we've been working on, criminal justice reform. Stephen, there's some activity on that front last week. Let's back up just a step. And uh, remind us what we're talking about when we talk about criminal justice reform. What what are the two big categories to help us understand like what we're trying to accomplish here? Yeah, so I think it's important to to I think you're right frame the the conversation. I think when people hear criminal justice justice reform, uh, the referent could be a number of things. Particularly from the federal legislative standpoint, I think it's important to recognize that criminal justice reform in this space has taken the form of what are called either front end either or I guess and, I should say, front-end or back-end reforms. Uh, And so when you think about how America goes about uh, its justice system in terms of sentencing and then also in terms of uh, the back-end reforms to be the internal operations of of prisons, particularly federal prisons, and how uh, inmates are – are treated, how rehabilitative are federal prisons, right? If we're thinking in terms of not a criminal justice system that doesn't simply deal with um, the incarceration and the punishment of crime, which is certainly 
legitimate. All right. We don't need to go through that. But if the expectation is that on the whole, now certainly this is not true for all inmates, but on the whole, uh, part of the expectation is that these individuals are going to be one day released. Right. uh, And um, they are then going to be, again, members, we hope, uh, productive members of society. And so how are we uh, setting these individuals up for success and particularly successful reintegration. This has been one of those issues where surprisingly in a political climate that is as polarized as this one is, bipartisan support has been one of the markers of this issue. And I think that goes to, that's largely because I think many people readily admit and will concede that the criminal justice system uh, that we have is not functioning optimally, uh, broken is probably the best way to describe it, because of the fact that what seems to be the long-held assumption that higher incarceration rates and longer sentences alone would lower recidivism rates, I think that that has proven to be a false narrative. Mm-hmm. And so the efforts that we've seen in last Congress, um, in both the, coming out of both the House and the Senate, um, thankfully, we have seen some recent activity, as you mentioned, uh, in the House and the Senate in this session. Particularly, again, going back to the the breakdown of front end versus back end, there is uh, most recently legislation that has been reintroduced uh, coming out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is led by Senator Chuck Grassley, a bill known as the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act. And he dropped that with Senator Durbin to address this bill addresses, again, both front end and back end reforms. That is sentencing plus the internal uh, reform measures. Uh, And we were encouraged to see this last congressional session. Um, This is an issue, as you mentioned, that we have been outspoken on so much so that after the unsuccessful efforts last congressional session, uh, with all the energy that we put into that effort in both the House and the Senate, in conjunction with several other organizations, Prison Fellowship, National Association of Evangelicals, uh, Colson Center, um, and ourselves, we thought it right to not let that um, that kind of positive momentum that we've built stall. And so we uh, released something that, that's called the Justice Declaration. We could talk a little bit more about that, but uh, all in the hopes that we would get to a point where we are today seeing members of Congress again take up this legislation. And so we're excited about it. We're hoping that uh, it does gain steam, mm-hmm. as we've just been talking about with another issue. There's competition for for attention uh, right. in in Congress, yeah. and so we're going to be doing work on this front as we continue to do work on a range of other fronts. But um, this is certainly needful uh, legislation for a number of reasons that touch on all those thematics that we've previously talked about or for right. another issue. Yeah. And so that's the the most recent news uh, that we have seen this comprehensive bill being dropped in the Senate once again with a, a range of bipartisan support. It's really, it's always fascinating to see the the, the, the different people on legislation and this particular measure um, has attracted the attention uh, across the board. Yeah. Uh, and this has been an issue that folks have been discussing, like you said, long before this particular uh, session of Congress and a uh, subject on which on the policy items, there is a lot of bipartisan agreement. There's not always bipartisan agreement on the current political opportunities, right? Uh, So uh, we have seen in previous Congresses, people have agreed to certain policy provisions and 
what they agree is a good and right thing to do. But then when the particular politics of the moment come around, they're not going to play ball and uh, actually help move the legislation forward. So our hope and our prayer and our work, right, involves trying to speak into those offices on both sides of the aisle to uh, encourage them to uh, collaborate in a bipartisan manner, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. absolutely right. So Travis, one thing or actually two big things came out on Friday uh, from the administration, one from the Department of Health and Human Services and one from the Department of Justice. Tell us about what got us motivated to write a bunch of stuff and post on the web last week. Yeah, it was I mean it was a monster week. I mean we we released a statement on on Dreamers, the White House released its statement of principles. There are the two things that you mentioned and I'll ask you in a second about the yeah. confirmation of Sam Brownback. Sure. But the two things that you uh, you mentioned the Department of Justice uh, released its guidance on religious liberty. Uh, this is a document that they've been working on for some time. We had provide we've provided written in and uh, oral comments into that into that process, and the result is a really strong document. I mean, in some ways, it's what you know, it's what you would call sort of like black letter law, in the sense that it's it's a summary and discussion of fairly uncontroversial points of, of First Amendment jurisprudence as handed down by the Supreme Court. Um, obviously, there are some points. So basically, the way the document is structured is there's um, 20 principles of that together define the parameters of religious freedom uh, under the First Amendment in the American system. There's some discussion about how uh, the federal government should should implement these principles in the employment, in the rulemaking, uh, in other procedures. And then there's an an appendix that goes even deeper into some of these principles, but it's a great document, I think. Yeah. Um, and you know, we we hope that it has uh, we hope that it has a wide ranging effect, uh, particularly when we're looking at the rulemaking uh, kind of process, which kind of leads to the second issue, which is uh, that the Department of Health and Services, the DOJ, the Department of Labor, Treasury, and one other, I think, issued a joint rule related to the contraceptive mandate. Right. Uh, this is a the case involving Little Sisters of the Poor. This is a case that ERLC has been involved with, really since 2010. Uh, yeah, so certainly since the beginning in a very uh, a public and active way. Right. Yeah. And so the the basic contours of the issue, you may be familiar with it, but the basic contours are um, under the Ameri uh, the Affordable Care Act. If you are, if you are uh, you know offering a qualified plan, that plan has to cover. Uh, a particular list of contraceptives that has been uh, – that list has been promulgated by um, HHS. And every health plan uh, in the country has to provide these contraceptives unless you fall into a very, very narrow exception, which applied basically just to houses of worship. And so the Little Sisters of the Poor, Guidestone Financial Resources, which is a Southern Baptist entity, yeah. a few um, – Baptist uh – Universities, yep. right, and several other and several other religious organizations that are certainly religious in character, clearly religious in character, right? They're nonprofits. However, they are not no, houses of worship, not a house of worship, right? Yeah. And so they didn't qualify under the original exemption. They sued the government. We were involved in that litigation as well, and that eventually was heard by the Supreme Court in a case called. Uh, Zubik v. Burwell and the Little Sisters of the Poor, as well as Guidestone and, right. and East Texas Baptist, prevailed. And after that, the Obama administration basically stalled and dragged their feet and did nothing. So finally, on Friday, uh, HHS issued a new religious exemption that would cover 
all of the entities that prevailed in the Supreme Court. But it, it, we should mention that the Supreme Court ordered ordered HHS, HHS to, to do, do this. this. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so finally they did. Finally. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, obviously this is – you know, an issue like this is in the eye of the beholder, and just like a lot of controversial issues, it depends on how you ask the question sure. and how you and how you look at it. But from where we're sitting, the the final rule offers a, a fairly balanced way of resolving this question. Obviously, a number of groups on the left were were really concerned and and issued and issued a number of strongly worded, you know, perhaps hysterical statements um, on Friday. Uh, related to the access, you know, access to birth control kinds of questions. And, you know, again, it, it comes down to how you ask the question. Because if if the question is, should everybody have access to contraceptives for free? That's a, that we can we can all answer that question in different ways. Sure. sure why not? I don't know. You know, who knows? Uh, you know, what, whatever. But that's not really the question that's being asked in this particular instance, because the question is, should the federal government require Ever, should, should require organizations and employers to pay for contraceptives, even those that they believe uh, to be morally wrong. So obviously for our Catholic brothers and sisters, they, you know, they have a problem with all kinds of contraceptives. Um, for us, you know, we, we have more complicated views on this, but have a serious concern with those contraceptives that have abortive fashion qualities. You know, so for us, you know, the question collapses into – not should women have access to this stuff, which is a debate that we can have, but rather should a Baptist university be forced to pay for plan B pills. Right. And that's what this really – By the federal government. Should the the federal federal government – should citizen A be forced to pay for something for citizen B that citizen citizen A uh, has a moral religious objection to? That's exactly right. Uh, Historically, our country has not done that Um, and uh, this is a a pretty big win uh, assuming this rule is is finalized in the federal register. Right. That's exactly right. And, you know, and I think it's also worth pointing out that notwithstanding all of the, you know, concern and and shouting on Friday, this question – has already been asked and answered by the Supreme Court of the United States, and they already decided. Yeah, two times exactly. Um, <laughs> but uh, this question's already been asked and answered. Yeah. And the answer to the question is that under the First Amendment, organizations should not and do not have to be, you know, cannot be forced into into doing this. And so, um, you know, that I, I think it, this this isn't it, we, what we have to recognize is that what the Supreme Court was trying to do here was balance these two interests. And that's exactly what they did. They ordered HHS to do exactly what they did on yeah. Friday. And HHS was simply following the instructions of the yeah. Supreme Court. Yeah. So anyway, so we we were, you know, obviously we were we were happy to see this and we're still waiting for the the final resolution of this case, you know, one one of the, you know, there's many layers to the situation, but uh, Guidestone and and several of the Baptist entities along with the little sisters are still involved in open litigation right. uh, with the federal government over this issue and that case is yet to be settled. Right. We we hope and are are asking for it to be settled soon, but uh, but that litigation is still ongoing. Basically and, waiting on the department of justice to uh, do the work of settling that case. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Um, you know, and and as you alluded to earlier, Matt, these rules have been issued as interim final rules. They go into effect immediately. There will be a comment period. Uh, we will participate in that comment period. If you're interested in participating in that comment period, we strongly encourage you to yeah. uh, to submit. Uh, and, and we will post. Uh, we won't be able to post it in the show notes because the mechanism is not yet open. But as soon as it is, we'll do an article or something that yeah, yeah. that uh, that gives you the opportunity to submit 
Follow uh, us on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. At Travis Wusso, W-U-S-S-O-W, and at M-T-H-A-W-K. Right. Matt is a much more prolific tweeter than I am. I'm an occasional tweeter. <laughs> but, um, you know, these these rules are sure to be challenged. There's yeah. a 100 percent – I mean they, – yeah, I mean, They're waiting the wings. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean I think ACLU yeah. has already announced that they're going to sue. So, um, you know, so we're, we're now going to have litigation on the other side to, to see, you know, to see how – you know, the shakes out, which again, I mean, there's no small irony in that given that what HHS was doing was simply following the instructions given to it by the Supreme Court. Yeah. But, you know, and yeah, here frankly, we still leaving the broad mandate intact. That's exactly right. Merely carving out religious exemptions for those who ask for it. Right. It, you know, you're exactly right. And in the, in the, you know, we'll, we will have to see, but we're talking about a vanishingly small uh, number of employers are actually going to claim this exemption. And by the way, one third of all employers or one third of all employees aren't even covered by the mandate anyway, because their plans are grandfathered. Right. So, which include a, a great many fortune 500 that's companies. Right. That's right. Uh, but, I think, yeah. Anyway, but that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's part of neither here part of there. history, easily, uh, easily searchable in Google. Lastly, um, another highlight last week was we uh, got to witness uh, the confirmation hearing, not the vote yet, but the hearing for Governor Sam Brownback from Kansas, who has been nominated by President Trump to head the International Religious Freedom Office at the Department of State. It is a congressionally mandated post with a number of staff. Um, uh, the former ambassador was Rabbi David Saperstein, and uh, we're waiting that the ambassador at large position is presently vacant until Brownback is confirmed. So those kind of confirmation votes could take anywhere from weeks to months following the uh, the hearing, but uh, Brownback faced uh, rounds of questions from both Republican and Democrat folks um, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and that was chaired by Marco Rubio. And uh, Brownback had to field, um, just as a, a point to convey the landscape on religious freedom issues, even though Brownback's portfolio is explicitly related to international religious freedom, a context where people are being locked up and murdered and uh, abused and all sorts of uh, ways in religiously motivated persecution around the globe, uh, he was peppered um, a lot with a number of questions having to do with domestic disputes um, along the lines of religious liberty and LGBT rights and uh, those kinds of things. So that was an interesting glimpse into uh, what confirmation hearings are all about. It's about scoring points and yep. grandstanding. Yeah. And making your the special interests to help you get elected happy. That's right. Although... <laughs> Brownback was a former senator, so it looks like <laughs> yeah. they didn't they didn't beat up on him too much. Yeah, that's true. And uh, Senator, I, th I think Senator Bob Corker expects a uh, a confirmation. Yeah, that's right. Well, and you know, and, and to your point, Maddie, like even Senator Kane, who was coming after uh, Governor Brownback at the beginning, you know, came back at, later on in the hearing and came to his defense. I mean, so. You know, I, I think it, in, in some ways it was, a lot, it was a lot of politics as usual. You know, you mentioned sometimes it can take weeks or months. You know, we're obviously working towards weeks, days, weeks, days, days maybe. Yeah, days would be nice. Less. I mean, I think it's uh, you know ten days till the next uh, scheduled hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, you know, we'll see. But, um, but you know, all in all, we were. You know, I I was encouraged by the hearing. Yeah, I, I think you did really well. Yeah, and I'll also drop into the show notes. Uh, a Facebook Live interview that Travis did with oh, yeah. Tom Farr from Tom Georgetown Farr. University, who is a also a former executive director of that IRF office in the State Department, and uh, has basically uh, been the guy to make the rational argument that international religious freedom is good for American national security. That's right. So uh, he waxed eloquent about that with you in 
the halls of Dirksen Senate office building. That's right. It was so a, we'll it was a, it was a janky Facebook live. It was, but it was good. Yeah. We're, we're learning all this tech stuff. <laughs> yeah. This has been a capital conversations, a podcast of the ethics and religious liberty commission. Be sure to visit evangelicals.life for more information about the 2018 evangelicals for life conference in January and to register using promo code CC two zero for 20% off. Special thanks to Gary Lancaster for editing the audio and to Marie Duff for getting the show online. Show notes for this episode are available at ERLC.com, along with additional podcasts and many other resources to equip you and your church, including that evangelical letter for Statement of Principles on Dreamers. Come join us in that effort today. Mm